This morning's reading is a readings from Mark's Gospel. They went across the lake to the region of the Gesenaries. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When Jesus saw from a distance, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell to his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Cut him out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillsider. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 numbered, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had, been seen, who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, about the pigs as well. The people began to plead with him to leave their region. As Jesus was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus, do not let, um, Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly this morning. You may be seated. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is the passage we have for us this morning, this telling, and we, we read um, that passage from earlier in Mark 2, that calming of the storm. And it seems like at this point in Mark's gospel, this is uh, about our fifth sermon in Mark's gospel, Jesus is entering into this conflict with the demonic in interesting ways. Um, for the ancient Near East Israel, the seas were the place in which um, uh, demons resided, in which darkness was. Minus fishermen, the Jews weren't really a seafaring people. Um, they normally reviewed it as a place of watery chaos and as trials. But, but this story for us today um, is one, I think, rich with meaning in many ways. I think it, uh, and part of the challenge it is um, perhaps hearing it uh, as, as both the story, I'm going to try and talk about it in three sort of distinct ways. What is the story in the text of Mark 5? Um, what's actually happening? Because uh, it's the base by which we, we, we know this is, this is what Jesus has done and how it works. The second is I want to look at it in the ways in which it's true of our world. 
And then the ways in which it's true of our individual. And I think most of these will overlap. And so you'll, you'll probably have to keep track and apply yourself. Um, and one of the things that, that became apparent to me, I, I often don't get to read scripture anymore aloud in public because um, you get enough of me preaching. <laughs> I think it's fair to have somebody else to do it. Um, but at my last church, I was the associate pastor, so it was always my job to read scripture. Um, and I missed it some, so I wanted to do it today. But what happens oftentimes when I sit down to study is like we're going through the Gospel of Mark, is I look at passages we haven't done before. I look at passages that I think are interesting. I look at passages that develop the distinct voice of Mark and the narrative of the Gospel. Um, and then occasionally something, I just read it, and I can't stop thinking about it myself. Um, and that's what happened with this story. I'd initially planned on doing the calming of the storm over and over again, and I read it again in a different translation, and I was just, there's something that is um, speaking in this passage that was speaking to my soul um, in a way that it was like I was just being drawn back and back and back to it. And what's funny is when that happens, I do... Let's say I have eight commentaries on the Gospel of Mark, and I'll read the short section on this passage from that commentary. Normally when that happens, all the commentaries, I'm like, yeah, but you're missing how great it is, um, because they're coming from it from the same way that probably, um, you know, it's an academic study, and they're trying to do it as fair as possible or whatever, and it's, and it's to me often that it's like, yeah, but there's something there that, that can speak to our souls in a way that perhaps can set us free that can hap, uh, do surgery on our souls. This, this notion of soul, too, is one that has expanded in myself. The more I pray the Psalms and the more I've led a church is, is about how our souls are healed by God and how we come to adoration there and how we magnify God in the words of Mary, that, that there's something about some of these stories. They're, they're true in the ways that they happened in the first century, and that gives us this way of acknowledging Jesus' power and the way that he works in the world. They're true in the way in which they are narratives which describe a world we can still relate to. If, the, if there was no um, way in which this word could leap the gap to us, I don't think we'd tell them over and over and over again. But I think they're also true in that third way in which it is meant to be um, not always a healing balm for us. Um, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a scalpel for surgery, but they're meant to sort of speak within us. Now, Many of you have read scripture a lot in your lives, and there are portions of scripture at different portions that that happens, and there are ones where you're like, no thanks. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work everywhere. It says, there's this, um, I learned it in hermeneutics. I think it's a famous great Greek saying that you never step in the same river twice, that like as you're reading scripture, you never step in it the same way twice. So Psalm 23 at a certain instance might have had this magnified meaning to you. And if you keep trying to repeat it, sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, and then Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, becomes more meaningful than he leads me beside still waters because of what's happening in our lives or something like that. Um, point being is this, this is one that came to alive to me in a different way than it has before. I think part of it is because... Is, is this is one of those stories that we know and we don't know at the same time. Hey, it's the story where Jesus casts a bunch of demons into pigs. That's true, but that's not really the content of the story. And so my familiarity with the story, my familiarity with like, I know the story, it's about Jesus casting people into the pigs, kept me from slowing down and reading the story, of hearing the story. 
The Wangers gave us a copy of the Book of Virtues for children, and I'd given Roosevelt the one about the boy that cries wolf, which tells you about what our life is like. But anyways, um, the, the final word of the story is that um, if you keep crying wolf, people won't believe you when you speak the truth, which is not related to the sermon per se, but it was just to say that like, I knew that story and I forgot that was the point. The moral impetus that like, yeah, you keep doing that, nobody's going to trust you ever and you're going to end up eaten by a wolf was what I kind of remembered. But that's not actually the point. The point is if your faithful speech, if your speech continues to unfaithfully match reality, people won't trust your descriptions of reality anymore. Uh, which is the point of that story. But needless to say, this one, I thought I knew what it was about. I thought I knew the story. And in fact, just saying, hey, it's the story where Jesus casts a bunch of demons into pigs was a way to ignore the content of the actual story. It was a way to ignore, and this is, this is me. I'm not saying uh, this of you. Um, but the, the scene, as we read it today, starts with this crossing of the sea. And what is happening in Mark's gospel is they're moving from Jewish-controlled region to Gentile-controlled region. This is Jesus' first act sort of in Gentile territory in Mark's gospel. This is the first time he, he crosses over into that spot. And so it's, it's not lost on us that a demon, which is many of them, is the first to greet him when he gets there. But the point is that... This is an older icon of that scene. Uh, I found one where Jesus um, uh, is just sleeping, not awake. Here he's awake in the, the other form. Um, but this idea that the seas were this domain of chaos and confronting an enemy. Like the, the two stories don't separate well, because if you're using um, sort of that ancient Near East imagination, or even just, um, uh, I often talk about how water particularly oceans, are terrifying. Like we live on rivers, which rapids can be terrifying, and we live near nice ponds and lakes, but oceans and bodies of water which flood and are out of control have their own terrifyingness to it that humanity generally would know if they lived near them, but, but we live in Colorado. In case of an emergency landing on water, here's, <laughs> I flew from Denver to Grand Junction, and I was like, I don't think there's a lot of water we're going to hit between here and there, but fair play. Um, but the point is, is that there's this contention at the sea in this sort of, uh, with creation. That the God who is his healing in sacred time and sacred space earlier in the Gospels is going out into creation and confronting creation as its healing and redemption as well. This isn't just a mission which in the synagogue gets restored, but a mission which Jesus will go out forth into the world and heal not just creation, but, but Gentile territory as well. So that's what's going on sort of with that previous scene. And it's, and it's there the disciples are pausing to ask the same question that many others. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In Mark's gospel, too, that there's been this secrecy too, to, to who Jesus is. The, the people who confess it the most, the demons, are often silenced before they can say much about it. And as Jesus heals people, particularly in the Jewish territory, it's different in this story, he tells people not to talk about it. Who is this one doing this? And I've mentioned that this is the point, one of the primary points of Mark Gospel, is to keep asking this question, who is this one? Because we get that confession, um, we can go to my helpful outline drawing, we get that confession from God in the beginning, we get Peter's confession, man's confession at the end of chapter 8, we get God's confession again um, 
from the mountain uh, in between at chapter 9. And then we get the confession most clearly and lastly when Jesus dies from the centurion at the cross who confesses, truly this man was God's son. Um, And that's sort of this who is Jesus thing being answered over and over again throughout Mark's gospel. There are other answers that come up as well, but the ones that seem to sort of bring about the, the story, move the story forward, seem to come from that place. There's one other way in which these stories are connected, and that was the psalm we read this morning. It said, you rule over the surging seas when its wave mount up, you still them. God in Mark 4, the end of Mark 4, is the one who's ruling over the surging sea. And, and this is Jesus' Mark's way of connecting Jesus to that he's God. Um, St. Jerome has this wonderful pra- phrase for that, that scene. Um, the creation recognizes its creator. Um, the creation is recognizing its creator and him sort of saying, be still and be quiet. Also, his objection to the storm is similar to what he used with demons in chapter 1. Sorry, he says to the storm, be muzzled, which is the same Greek phrase he used in chapter 1 for the demon. Uh, be silent. Um, anyways, uh, and then the second, you crush Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. That the psalm holds together sort of these two passages in Jesus' mission here. First, that he is the one who rules over the surging sea, and the one who also scatters God's enemies. And in Mark's gospel, one of the tensions for the readers, the first century readers, and the Jewish expectation is that the enemies were supposed to be the Romans. When in fact, what's being revealed through Mark's gospel is there's a much deeper enemy than that. The Romans might be subject to it. The gospel does have, or the New Testament does have anti-Roman, for lack of a better word, propaganda sprinkled throughout it. It is not fans of Rome. But what, what Jesus is saying in his way, or what Mark is saying in his way, is that there's an enemy that's beyond that. Casting out Rome won't cast out the demons that rule your world. They'll just go find another place to be. And so Mark's gospel is this way in which he's going to scatter those enemies, but in expectation, it's not going to be the Romans, but it's going to be uh, this demonic power that seems to be ruling over the world. One last thing before we walk through the story is this is a passage that I wanted to preach on but didn't, um, but it comes from Mark 3, or the end of Mark 3, um, where they're accusing him of how is he casting out demons, and Jesus responds to them. They're saying he's doing it because he has a demon. Jesus responds to them, How can Satan drive out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. The kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What Mark is portraying Jesus as in his gospel is the one who has tied up the strong man that is Satan and is plundering his house, bringing out rescues of captives, of the demon-possessed, of people confounded by storms, of people um, brought to places of darkness and unhealing because of 
of physical ailments and such, and redeeming them and proclaiming this kingdom which opposes that kingdom. See, in this passage, is the kingdom is divided of itself. It's, this is that second time Jesus mentions that word kingdom in Mark's gospel too, before he tells the parables of the kingdom, is that there are rival kingdoms, and Jesus is the stronger one who binds the kingdom that we think is ruling this place and is taking captives out of it. So as Jesus goes on this conquest throughout the land, he is the one redeeming and bringing people back from that other kingdom. So that's the setup for today's story. They went across the lake. There was a storm. Jesus got out of the boat. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The way the man is described, I think, is... um, one of the first things to sort of consider is that he lives among the tombs. No one could bind him, which goes back to that strong man component, that this is one who is strong. No one is capable of binding this man. He lives night and day among the tombs. He cries out and he cuts himself with stones. Um, he is a left to the place of death because he is sort of one who resembles death in some way. He is one who has, who has become this sort of shroud of death for this community. And so much so in the ways in that they've tied to bind him, the ways they've tied to sort of pacify him, none of them work. And so he lives and roams at the tombs, the place of death. Now, one of the, one of the ways we, we can really talk about this being Gentile territory is, one, um, uh, they, this man lives in the tombs, which would have made him more ritually unclean. Second is that the pigs on the countryside, too. But but that he is sort of this one who's sort of left out there. And again, as we think about ourselves in relationship to the story, he's one who's lacking human connection. I mean, there's this, there's this way in which he's not just one who lives near the place of death, um, but he is one who has uh, only been used to be try and bound. He's one whom the world has only tried to sort of control and constrain And when that doesn't work because of his strength and he breaks all the chains on his feet, um, he is left in the hills and he just cries out day and night. The fact that he cuts himself with stones might might allude to a mourning ritual gone wrong, too, um, as he was mourning uh, the loss of someone. And that sort of enters into this place in which he is uh, submerged in, in sort of the demonic activity. And this is one of the longest described demons that Jesus is going to cast out. Now, one of the things that I, I want to, to nail sort of as, as we go through this is, is the way in which this is the story of us as we come to know Christ and are baptized and brought to new life. That we live with demons in ourselves and we become, through baptism, reclaimed territory in this battle. So as we go through this, that's one way to think about it. The second is, I've, I've talked before about this. I don't think people who can sit peacefully through a church service, um, awake or not, um, can experience um, possession by demon in themselves. Um, we don't see a lot of evidence of that in that people are in the synagogue, properly in the synagogue, and able to handle the proclamation that's there. And so if Jesus is being proclaimed in your midst, you would probably end up more like this man or all the other man saying, you know, 
this one needs to either get away from me or I need to flee. So the fact that we're here. But that doesn't quite clear the New Testament notion that there are demons and other powers that surround us. So it's baptized territory. There is no sharing of space is one of the things I would say, that that God has redeemed and cleansed the space. There is no sharing of it. But I would say that to keep reading the story as if it's ourselves, if if it's therapy for our own souls, it's important to see that, that we live in a world that has a legion of demons around it, for they are many. And they too, in addiction, in depression, social anxiety and angst, and the ways in which they malform us. Uh, You could pick on, if the Wall Street Journal has been running a a series of articles called The Facebook Files on about how bad social media is for us, particular teenage girls. We live in a world with a legion of demons around us. And they too drive us to tombs. They drive us away from social interaction with people. They drive us, in in, in some ways, actually to self-harm, but even to ways in which we continually harm ourselves because we know no other way. They teach us to reside in death and act like that's where we belong. And so what Jesus is going to do here is, is rescue this person back and send them out. The end of the story, again, it's a story about Jesus throwing <laughs> people into pigs. I just missed the whole point in my whole life summarizing it that way. It's, it's the story of someone who lives in the territory of death, bound in ways that are so far beyond their control, with no one around them to help them being restored. Sure, the demons end up in pigs, but that's only an adventure missing the point. Um, so the man comes out from a distance, and he falls on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Demons in, in Mark's gospel seem, we said, to have a fatal attraction to Jesus. That when they see him, they go to him. And they use, like, the son of the Most High... More and more commentators this time point out that this seems to be a way into sort of have an incantation control over someone. That if you know the name of the thing, then you gain some power over it. Um, So who are you? What's your name? Um, Even going first attempt, son of the most high God. The demon is in some way trying to gain position in this battle with Satan or with Jesus, this battle with Jesus. Um, And he's asking not to be tortured um, because Jesus had already commanded him to come out. Um, and so what happens next is this exchange in which Jesus says to him, what is your name? My name is Legion, who replied, for they are many. This man, this world, our individual souls, confronts something that is many. Now, one of the things that this legion term is, is a military term. It's the description, a number of a Roman sort of armateria uh, size. I think it's 5,000, although if you, if you want to have fun reading the numbers, it's five, it, it might be 2,000. They just say they're a legion because there's 2,000 pigs that go into the sea. So, you know, there's many demons within this man. We are legion for we are many. We... 
sometimes as Christians can see the legion that distorts and destroys the world. Sometimes we don't, and sometimes it's often suggested to me, what are we to do then? Which is, of course, you know, the answer is to cast out demons, um, to rely on Jesus. The, then the previous scene, why are you afraid, that, that image of that boat, the church has often seen itself as that boat, with Jesus sleeping within it, protecting it from the storms it confronts and its persecutions and trials throughout the world. What are we to do is to reside with that one. But there are many which distort and defame and tear us apart, and not just tear us apart, but our world apart. I talked a little bit more individualistically last time. The, the world, I think, as we sort of begin to narrate it and look at it, has these ways in which it, it is legion as well in the ways in which it would like to pull us away, to keep us from human connection. They beg Jesus not to send them out of the area. There there's, might be two challenges here. One is that they seem to have made a nice place in this area. They have uh, a body in which they can sort of torture but not kill, um, which would be the point of a demon. It's one To kill something is, is your fun's over, I would guess. You know, you, you've, you've done your part, right? But to have one whom you can reside with in this dark place, um, scare people, live in the hills, and have people reside within your crying, that, that might be a better goal for a demon, you would think, than just to kill because then your work is done. They have a nice place. There's this scene in which the crowd come back, um, and we'll talk about that, but the crowd comes back, and the way that they kick Jesus out might imply, in, in, in the gospel, this is told three different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, might imply that the, the, the town is under demonic sway itself, that their rejection of Jesus because of this good thing has more, less to do with the lost money from pigs, but more to do with the ways in which they come back and resist him and call him to leave. I think it's in Matthew's telling of the story. The words they use are the same ones. The words they tell him to go away with are the same ones they ask to be the demons used to sort of be released. Um, and so Jesus, uh, they ask Jesus to, and you'll notice that the, the shifting here, the man says to Jesus, he doesn't want the demons gone. The demons speak and they say, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Um, there's two different things. One is there's perhaps a way in which the man has learned to love his own alienation. Um, we love that which tears us and separates from others because to be in the light is more painful than it is to sit in the dark that we know and trust. This doesn't sound like addiction. Um, you know, to be in that place, to have that comfort is sometimes better than moving out. But the second is, is, is even if that's not the case, the man is so subsumed with these Who's speaking, the man, the demons? It doesn't really matter. He's so overcome. And so Jesus allows them to go among the pigs. And, and uh, I have the NIV, but the, the Bible we bought for everybody, I need to order more is the ESV. I don't know what it says. But Jesus, again, in this military ways, it says he gives them permission here. But what he does is he dismisses them the way a general would submit them, and allows them to enter into the pigs, which is both um, a symbol of, of sort of what militaries do and has some sexual connotations as well, just sort of in the, the violent sort of entering in. 
to the pigs. And so he has this two ways in which he does this. And they entered the herd, about 2,000 in number, and rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. If the earlier image of, of the water being demonic territory, these demons return to where they come from. They go back and drown themselves in it. There's another way in which, in which they um, baptize themselves in the way that when we are baptized, the demon within us is drowned. Those which bind us are, is drowned. So another way to read it in which they're tricking Jesus. They've gotten into the demons and they know if they run off the cliff, this will get Jesus pushed out of the area. Um, See, this is, this is an odd scene because the one thing we all remember about it, and we have no idea why it happens. Um, why they, it could be that uh, one human with many demons um, is able to be a foil, but the pigs prove much harder to control. Um, and so as they enter the pigs, the pigs resist of their own accord and run off the cliff. Not, not the interpretation Jews would take. Jews don't like pigs, so they would say, ah, pigs aren't that smart. They'd be happy to have a demon residing within them. Um, that's one of the comical parts of the story is that if you were a first century Jew reading this, you'd be like, less pigs. This is good news. Um, good news overall. Um, but regardless of which, the demons then... It, um, distinguish themselves into the lake. What happens to demons, and, and Brian asked this question last time after they're released or this, that, and the other, is unclear in the New Testament. The tradition has both said when Jesus cleanses them out, they are no more. Um, they, they no longer exist. Uh, the tradition has also answered that, that they are then free to sort of roam and prowl again because in the book of Revelation, the day at which they will be suffered and put to extinguishment is forthcoming. So that is not this day. Um, my, my interpretation would be is Jesus is the foretaste of the forecoming of that day, and so he probably is extinguishing them in his own ministry, but that is not in its fullness until the day of Revelation. Point being is they're gone, um, and they've run off. And the men tending them, again, for Jews, these would not be heroes because they are tending pigs, and likely Gentiles anyways, um, they run off and report this into the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. And going back to that first description of the man, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They come out and see the one who might have been like a midnight alarm clock for them who would scream in the hillsides sitting there clothed. In, in Mark's gospel, there's this clothed thing plays a role, uh, particularly in the man who's clothed in the tomb at the end. They see a man who's clothed, who once was demon-possessed, sitting there in his right mind, and they were afraid. Instead, the town people might have their own demon problems too, but this would be a terrifying experience for anyone. The one whom we could not bind, the one who tried as we might, the strongest we had, has now been found sitting there, sane and in his right mind. Clothed again would be terrifying. Not to mention the reason they came out is 2,000 pigs have also spontaneously run off a cliff. This for our own selves as we teach and proclaim this gospel I think sometimes we're shocked that it works. 
Sometimes those whom we have seen at the edges and periphery of our society and of places, we run into them and they are there dressed and in their right mind. And we have no idea what to do with it. This, for our own selves, and I would say this is, um, we, we perhaps should have that own fascination with our own souls if we know them well. I am one who is chased after a legion of demons. And yet in God's work, I can be restored, sitting there dressed and in my right mind. And that for a world that's at war with God through the sea and through other things might be terrifying in of itself. There are people not bound to the demons that seem to go to and fro. There are people redeemed out of this. There are people who know themselves well enough that they could have been ones wandering among death and yet have been brought back to life by God. We see this in others perhaps easily than we see it in ourselves, although I think if you haven't seen it in yourself, it's time to, time to pray for that surgery itself because we have our own passions and desires that create this as well. And so he's sitting there like that. This is the, the sort of what would be the end of sort of the classic healing story. And the people told him about what happened with the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs as well. And the, the people began to plead with him to leave their region. Jesus acquiesces and he's getting into the boat. The man who was demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Jesus uh, resists the man's call to be a disciple, perhaps an apostle by following him, but sends him back to to his home to announce the good news of what Jesus has done for him. Their amazement happens. But actually, sorry, I missed that. Jesus sends him back to announce what the Lord has done for him. Who is Jesus? The man goes back and announces what Jesus has done for him. The man is answering the question himself in his testimony. It's not a prophet of God who has done this, attributed to the Lord. It is the Lord himself who has healed this man and brought that about. Again, as Mark's gospel goes on, there's people missing this right and left, and I don't think we should judge them harshly. But this man, healed from these demons, doesn't go back and listen to, doesn't take Jesus' advice and announce what the Lord has done to him, but announces Jesus as the Lord who has done this for him. This man sort of becomes the first missionary in Jesus' gospel and his way of going back and, and seeing and announcing what God has done, which we often skip as Christians, the people are amazed. The modern apologetics movement, for all its good and for all its difficulties, often announces, here's why you should believe, but seldom announces what the Lord has done for me, what Jesus has done for me. It's a joy that Christianity makes logical sense. Don't hear me saying it doesn't. But what causes the people to be amazed is this man's testimony of moving from death back to life of being restored in this way. Too often we wonder why people don't get it and all we do is talk about facts rather than how we've been rescued ourselves. To close, the, the, 
the one person in all my study this week who I thought, hey, he gets it, was Gregory the Great, um, 400s. Uh, a legion of demons, and I think Gregory the Great is a pope, and that's, he's the great pope, so this is his testimony. A legion of demons has, I believed, uh, has been, as I believed, cast out of me. I would prefer merely to forget all of that I have known and simply to rest at the feet of the Savior. Below, it is said to me so strongly as to compel me against my will. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let us pray. God, through the reading of Scripture, through the opening of Mark, we too become witnesses to this story, to this healing, to this good news. We watch it unfold through your Spirit. God, as I've mentioned, we see this demon in our own baptismal stories towards joining Christ. God extinguishes that within us. We see the temptations that surround us individually. And pray for you to come and to continue to guard us against those which would pull us down. And finally, we see a world in which legion is the name of what is tearing us apart, that brings us back and back to tombs instead of to new life. God, may we see in our lives and in the world what happens to this man. What was strong in many, through the power of your word, is cast out. The storms are calmed. The cosmic creation is rescued. Our souls and the world is being reclaimed by the mission of your Son. And so, too, may we go forth and tell of what you've done and how you've had mercy upon us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.